They had a technology that was better than ours. They should have wiped the floor with us. But we didn't lose one customer. I believe the reason that nobody left us is because of customer relations and customer service. And I still believe that. And I think that, that if there's anything going wrong with the world, it's the loss of that. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Today, we sit down with Paul Millman, co-founder of employee-owned Chroma Technology in Bellows Falls, Vermont. Chroma is a leading manufacturer of specialized optical filters, coatings, and mirrors for leading firms in life sciences, agriculture, security, and aerospace. Welcome. This is Sam Roach-Gerber and Dave Bradbury recording from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Paul, I almost didn't even press record because we we're having so much fun talking with you already. <laughs> so I'm really glad that you are here and we're meeting for the first time, you and I. Me too. I'm and, glad to be here. And I'm glad that we agreed that it would be okay if Dave joined us as well. Thanks. I'm such a Paul fan. I, I said this before we start. I never know what's coming out of your mouth. So um, be forewarned, oh entrepreneurs boy. and listeners. We'll try to try to keep it at our at our usual length here. But if it's a three or four hour podcast, it's a three or four hour podcast. <laughs> um, so, Paul, almost a year ago, you retired as president and co-founder at Chroma Technology in Bellows Falls. Let's take it way back. Did you always know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and to build something? Is this something that was always part of your dream? No. Um, actually, it was, it was counter to what I was supposed to dream because business was counter to what I was supposed to dream of. I was supposed to dream of an, a career in academia or medicine or social work. Something maybe. intellectual. <laughs> something that... Um, that was in keeping with um, my the 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 what the not ideology but the the culture of my parents. Although my father was a businessman, but he was o- always also something else. And, and the business was an was, uh, um, antiquarian bookstore, so it really wasn't, it was acceptable because other, you know, iconoclasts were antiquarian book dealers. And my mother um, was president of the board of a local community center, so she was very much into changing the world. And um, so that, that was the ethos that I grew up in. Business was not perceived as something that one aspired to and I didn't. And where did you grow up? In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So even at a young age, it was not on the radar? No. um, No, it it was frowned upon, actually. It was not something that, that one ever talked about. And it wasn't until... Um, we started Chroma that I was able to say certain words without covering my mouth. So <laughs> words like salesman. Oof. Um, I had been a salesman. I had been in business before. I'd worked for um, a brass bed manufacturer. I worked for an importing company from, um, that imported f- goods from India. I worked for another importing company that imported goods from around the world to the gift and home furnishings market. Um, but every time I would meet old friends, I would, they would say, what are you doing? And I would say, I'm a... <laughs> and, make up a um, title. I, no, I just covered my mouth and slurred the words. And Don't tell well, my mother. When, well, right. <laughs> and this a, lasted until 1991 a, <laughs> when Chroma was formed? Or, or? This is before. <laughs> this, was, this was in the 1970s, actually. And um, um, when I came to Vermont, I, the, the, my, the, most, the job I had most recent before moving to Vermont was one of the co-managers of the, um, of the Blue Note Club in New York City, the jazz club, which I thought was going to be the greatest job in the world. It was awful. It was a <laughs> terrible job. 
Um, and um, um, and I'd been a bartender and, and, and a waiter and a restaurant manager. And I came to Vermont, so I started looking for jobs in that area. And um, they were hard, they were none. And so somebody said to me, why don't you go to the state employment office? They'll help you get a job. And I didn't, never knew anybody who ever got a job from any state employment office. So I went to the state employment office in Brattleboro, where I was living at the time. And he said, we don't have any restaurant jobs um, at the moment. And as I was walking out the door, he said, I see on your resume that you've been a salesman. <laughs> And I said, uh-huh. And he said, have you ever sold a product that you thought had, um, had um, um, value to the society? And I said, no. And he said, would you like to? And I said, I need a job. <laughs> and so he sent me to work for another optical filter company in Brattleboro, where is, I learned the business. Did you have any idea what an optical filter was none, when you took the job? <laughs> none whatsoever. And they used words that I never, that made no sense to me, that were not part of my vocabulary. Yeah. But I've learned every other job that, that, I, ever, that I ever was a part of, and, and every other product that I ever sold, I learned. So I learned this one. So okay. um, could you tell us what chroma technology makes and, and, and what makes the company special? So there's, there's history because specialness is, is different at different times in history. So chroma technology makes interference coatings. They go on glass or things like glass, um, quartz or something like this, and they interfere with light. And when Chroma started, its primary business was something called fluorescence microscopy. And these are research-grade microscopes, not the kind that you get and use in high school. Actually, Sam has a technical degree in that if you want to okay. ask her some follow-up <laughs> questions. And, and some years back, um, scientists discovered that if they would stain biological samples with dyes that would fluoresce, they could see what they wanted to see better than if they just looked under the microscope because they could eliminate the things that they didn't want to see. In order to do this, you have to have optical filters because one filter has to make the light more monochromatic so that the, 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 the this is called an excitation filter and it makes the light monochromatic in a shorter wavelength. And then there's something called the emission filter, which makes monochromatic the light of a longer wavelength. What happens is you shine the short wavelength on the sample that is infused with this dye, and the photons get crazy, and they, 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 they spin off the sample. That, those photons are the fluorescence. But fluorescence is much weaker than the light source. So in order to see it, you got to block out the light source. So at the time that Chromus was started in 1991, I believe we did that better than anybody else. But we did it with equipment that was used. We couldn't afford new equipment, so we bought all old equipment from the semiconductor industry, rebuilt it to do what we wanted to do. Can't do that anymore. We started Chrome with $235,000, I believe. There's a company in Austria that got started a couple of years ago that we heard about um, that got started with $21 million <laughs> worth of equipment. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what you need to get into that market today, but it wasn't then. That's crazy. And we were lucky because we emerged at a time when science was really doing things that it had not done and was developing instruments that had not been done before. So the Human Genome Project was just beginning and, and was, was emerging full-blown. And so sequencing 
of the genome was a big deal, and you did that with fluorescence. And so we emerged just at the right time in history. The, um, but the, the, and so we were really good at this. But the other special thing about us is from the beginning, we were owned by the employees. And we were, we, we were always owned by the employees. The company is still owned by the employees. There are no outside shareholders. Never, there, there was one outside shareholder for a very short period of time because there was a machine shop in Brattleboro that helped us get started and, 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 and didn't charge us very much for what he did for us. And it was, they were incredibly important to us. So we gave him shares in the company. And at some point, and he gave the, put the, the shares in his children's name. And at some point, they were really worth something. And he, they sold them, and the kids got the money. And that was the last time we, the first and only time we ever had an outside shareholder. So yeah, it was started by the founders, friends and family sort of money. The money was yeah. friends and yeah. family. Amazing. Some of us had savings. I had savings. So I didn't um, collect a salary for the whole first year. I didn't need to. Um, and others um, um, forfeited their salaries, not forfeited, but postponed their salaries on occasion. And there was one, one week when everybody had to postpone their salary because we were cash poor at that, at, at, at that time. And, um, and it was, the, look, it, it was Vermont. It was Brattleboro, Vermont. They were, at one point, there were probably more communes in Wyndham County <laughs> than there were in Israel, you know? And, and, um, and so that was who we were. We, were. we came from there. And even though I came to Vermont later, at the end of that period, the others had come at the beginning of the period, so we were all very interested in doing things collectively, and so it was logical. It was just, from the start, there was no question of, of the There employment. was a question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there were big fights. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, there were And big how fights. many founders are we talking? There were originally seven, and the, and the one who most desperately wanted it to be equity owned because his parents had a lot of money and they were willing to front us the money as long as they got 51% of the company. He left mm. when it became apparent to him that it wasn't going to be his way. And then there were some that were a little bit more ambivalent. I, of course, um, you know, dare I say this in, in a podcast I come from, some people say a socialist home. My parents were communists. It was, you know, in the 1930s. And so there was no way that I could imagine somebody working for me. Mm. And, 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 and that where I would benefit from their labor. And I think I'm right. I think I was right then. I think I'm right now. I think that it shows, especially now, where, where I think the most among the most important issues in the United States is wealth inequality. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot to combat that. Um, in, in what ways, Paul? I mean, in addition to, to providing ownership, right, what, what other programs or, or sort of mm -hmm. tactics or, or benefits that you provided so there are three. There are three ways in which we compensated people. There was salary, there was shares in the company, and there was profit sharing. Originally, salary was equal, but that couldn't stay that way for long because different jobs had had different skill levels, and 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 mostly different jobs. That we saw when we started looking outside of the company to fill those jobs, we found out that we had to be competitive in in wages. So, so, so someplace around, I don't know, we started the company in 1991, someplace after the millennium changed, um, we began to have um, salaries that were more closer to market wages. But instead of saying, this job has this salary, and this job has this salary, and this job has this salary, we broke it into large groups, and um, we we had the groups were called we called them tiers, and so all jobs in a certain tier, they had the same salary range, mm. 
and so the salary had a the salary range had a bottom and a top. So there's transparency for the employees as it was well. Completely, because yeah. there was there was if you were in that salary range, you knew where where, where you started, and you, you knew where after a certain number of years you were going to go. Um, so we had we we had inequality of wages, but even at the end, at my end, I'm sorry, not the end of Chroma, but <laughs> when I retired. The end of the era, if you will. The end of my year, at least. Um, the entry wage was $40,000, and the top wage was $220,000. So I don't know what that ratio is, but that was the ratio. It was nothing like the ratios. About seven that you, times. Right. It's nothing older. like the ratios that you hear in the world today. So that was one. So salaries were in, in, in unequal. Share distribution was equal. Everybody who worked the year before full-time got 200 shares, or was bonus 200 shares in the company. And profit sharing was equal. Mm. So everybody, irrespective of their job, of their job description, got the same share of the profits. The idea there was that everybody contributed to the profits. Right. And... Um, how do you reconcile being from a communist sort of background and, and using the word profits in the same two minutes? Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> how, do you, uh, how do you deal? I respect that about you. I find it fascinating all these years. So, so it, you know, there's this old joke about socialism that, every, that socialism wants everybody to be equally poor. Well, my socialism wanted everybody to be equally rich. <laughs> so it was easy for me. You know, the more, the more profits we made, the more everybody was equally rich. And it worked. And so I think that the, I remember it was in the 90s, we still were in the incubator space in, in, in Brattleboro, and people started buying houses. So pe some people owned houses, but they generally came from families that had money. But people who didn't come from families that had money started buying houses. And I didn't see that, but my partner at the time, she saw it. She said, you know, people who never would have been able to afford a house are buying houses. And I knew we were right. That's so that, cool. you know, that moment in history. I said, that's it. We were. This justifies everything. Amazing. And so just thinking about that strategy of how you built that, the company from the start, how did that impact? I mean, you talked a little bit about when you started to get those sort of um, pressures from other competitors and things in terms of hiring, but how did you handle hiring at the beginning? Was it just sort of folks in the area? Did you need really specialized labor? Well, um, at, at the beginning, it was just people from the area. We didn't, um, we, we never thought we'd grow enough, grow big enough to need people from the outside. And so we were just hiring, and, and you could learn the job on the job. It took a little while, but you could learn the job on the job. And it was, it was, oh God, it was the process that, that cooperatives and communes used to, to, to bring in people. Everybody in the entire company had to agree. And I think there were people that we lost out on who were talented people who didn't pass the unanimity test. And that, become, that was a problem. And so there were things that began pressures that began to to be placed on the company and its um, its um, culture as we grew that we had to deal with. Um, we used to have big meetings where ostensibly everything was decided in those big town meetings. Well, they weren't. You know, lots of things were decided every day of the year. And, um, and as long as they were not something that somebody noticed, nobody said anything. And then and we, 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 we objected to hierarchy, except hierarchy develops and, and is probably necessary. What it needs to be is it needs to be a, a, a humane hierarchy, but you cannot run a company without some kind of hierarchy. It just doesn't work. Do you recall what size number of employees that that was the, yeah, it was the about perfection <laughs> point? Eight. It was about no. 17, <laughs> 17. <laughs> oh, when, when it began to be apparent that, that 
that there was going to, in retrospect, it was apparent that there was going to that there were going to be differentiation of roles, but at the time we fought against it, and um, and and and, and e t even today they, they 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 still have arguments about such things. I uh, I've always been fascinated as to you know forming a company, right? I, I believe you and your co-founders came from the other optical company. There was a mm -hmm. lot of tension, friction frustration there, formed Chroma, and you you answered earlier what was special, right? You talked about the product and mm -hmm. then sort of the, the people and, and the values you had. Um, did you start with the values first and then find the product, or did you start with the product no. and then? No, I think anybody, I, you know, I have talked to young people who want to go into business. They want to start cooperatives. And because the Vermont Employee Ownership Center is one of the most important centers in the country. Um, we had one here before most any, any state had. I think there was one state that preceded Vermont. I don't remember if that's the case. But um, so they would be, we would have our annual meeting and there would be young people who really, really were energized about the idea of being in cooperative businesses. And I said, the first thing you better do is figure out what you want to do. Because if you don't do that, then it doesn't matter what your values are. If you don't have a functioning and successful business, I don't care what your values are. And we made a mistake in Vermont a long time ago. Um, the Vermont Employee Ownership Center, I think, and I don't know what others think, but I think we made a very bad mistake. You may remember when Ethan Allen closed the factories in the kingdom. There were two factories in the kingdom. Yep. And Ethan Allen closed them. And there was a group there that wanted to reopen the factories owned by the employees. And it's the greatest idea since sliced bread, I thought. And so, um, and we raised money, um, a quite, I think quite a lot of capital, and um, to help them get started. But they concentrated on getting the structure right instead of getting the product out. Mm -hmm. And the product, I mean, they had, they had customers waiting. Dartmouth College, well, I don't know what you call those things that you roll books around in libraries, there's a word for that, but I don't remember it. Dartmouth wanted new ones. Dartmouth had a forest that they needed to have harvested. The plant was in Beecher's Falls, I think it was. <laughs> you know? And so you could have harvested their wood, made the carts that you roll things on, and you would have had a customer. We didn't. We did not, we did not focus on the business first and the structure second. Thank you for saying that. It, it, that I wouldn't have expected that. So, right, mm. Sam? Yeah. No, business right, first. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's nice if you bring your ethos with you to the business. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about, just because I, I forget what interview I read, but um, you talked a lot about like that. I think you said that you are, you may consider yourself a leader, but not necessarily a manager. Um, oh, yeah, <laughs> and I'm. I just. I love. I love that, and I think I'd love to just dig into it a little bit, hear more about your thoughts there. I think there's a real distinction there. Although I imagine that there are some leaders who are good at managing. I was not. I am not. <laughs> um, I'm impatient. Um, I I I want people to know things by osmosis. Um, I'm best when I'm doing something and people are along with me and they can participate in the doing. So I was lucky that, that the, the domain that was mine was sales mm. and customer relations because I got to take my colleagues around the world to meet customers and they could learn by doing. And, but if you asked me to teach it, Oof. I would have a very hard time. Um, and I, I I, I'm also hyperactive, so I'm not very good at at the the slog process of developing management. I, I'm sure it's necessary. I'm positive it's necessary, but I'm not as comfortable with it. And I, I think for me, 
it was appropriate to leave Chroma at a time when the transition was to a more managed company because I wasn't that guy. Yeah, and so how did you, I mean, you you were the leader there for a long time, so how did you sort of um, structure the company in a way that, you know, someone was managing, right? So did you sort of just pe- put people around you that were <laughs> that were good at that? Or? Hope, hope was the strategy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, at the... <laughs> Early on, and for a lot of years into the into the the two thousands, um, one of the six founders was the production manager, and and in my head, and I think in other people's heads, was Paul would go around the world selling, and Dick would make sure that they, that they, everything we that I sold was made, and it and it it worked, <laughs> and it, it it just I I have no idea how he did it. Um, you could ask him how he did it, but somehow, um, whatever we sold got got made, and um, uh, later um, we set up a steering committee to um, organize the production of the company, and I was not on the steering committee. Um, consciously not on the steering committee because I just partly because my personality is too dominant and but and that would be okay if I had all if I also had skills at management (laughs) but I don't just dominant doesn't exactly work so you don't want to dominate unskilled dominant (laughs) you don't want to dominate something that you can't contribute to so we set up a steering committee and um and initially, it was not their day job. Yeah. Their day job was to do whatever it was they were doing. But it became apparent after not too long that, that these were actual jobs. And, um, and then um, later on, with the addition of um, newer people in leadership roles, um, the steering committee was eliminated, and actual management managers were. What what stayed constant was minimalism in management. We mm. did not have, and it was a complaint that 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 was made about us on Glassdoor. Yep. Somebody who left the company said there was no room for. Um, for rising in the company. There was no room for advancement because there weren't that many jobs of anybody who was a manager. Maybe we, you know, at the, at the time that that person is talking about, hmm. maybe there were four managers or five managers in the company. So, you know, where where were you going to go? You had to wait for one of them to either leave or, or, or retire or croak, you know? And, yeah. and so now I think it's, I suspect it's somewhat different now. I mean, it was already becoming different when I left. And um, be, be, it was becoming different before I left even. And um, I did not participate fully in um, the development of the management class at Chroma. Um, Partly, I don't think they wanted me to, and partly that was fine with me because I didn't want to. Um, I think, I mean, I don't know if you want to, if, if at some point in this conversation we get to the regrets, but um, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, the the regret that I have is that I didn't spend more time explaining the culture. I just mm. because it was so easy at the beginning, everybody just figured either figured it out or they came with it, and and then all of a sudden it was, you know, it was there were seventy five people working there, and then a hundred people working there, and one hundred and twenty five people working there. And we had a we had a, um, a subsidiary in the Burlington area, and all of a sudden um, the question of culture became important. But by that time, I was getting ready to leave. And so I regret that I didn't spend more time trying to help people understand 
why the culture and Chroma's success went hand in hand. Um, and I, I think that... That's funny. We just, I was just going to say, we literally just got off a of lunch and learned that we had one of our startups do around building culture. And the founder, and there, you know, the company's only been around since 2016, but he was saying his first five hires were all failures. He hired five people in the first you know, couple of years and every single one of them didn't work out. And he attested part of that being to not being intentional with the culture and not sharing that with those employees, whether it was um, you know, what to expect or why we're doing this or you know, what he, you know, why he started the company. All, all of those things right. are, are really important. I agree. Um, and it's also, it's not just why we're doing it, it's why did we do it. So um, one of the, before, um, before I retired, it was my intention to explain the evolution of the salary and compensation structure at Chroma. And um, then COVID hit and I never did it. So I never, so there, it, 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 it looks like it came fully formed. It did not, and there were reasons for it. And um, there, are, there are both practical and ideologic reasons for things. And if you don't know the history, it's very hard to understand the present. And you know, it was great when we all knew the history, but all of a sudden, not everybody knows the history. And now there's pressures to change things that, because you don't understand. Yeah, and um, so Chrome is also a certified B Corp. Mm -hmm. um, why was that pursued, and how did that help bolster, threaten the culture mm -hmm. that was in place? Right? Was it? Was it? Yeah. Um, well, this is a Vermont story because um, many years ago, um, I, don't, I, I don't know how many years ago, when when the idea for the B Corp was being developed, it was in part developed by Jeff Hollander um, from Seventh Generation. And Jeffrey called a lunch meeting, and a bunch of us were at the meeting. And I thought it was crap, frankly. <laughs> I thought it was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. Against him, um, unskilled, opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I wasn't, um, we didn't become a B Corp early on. And... Um, um, Did you feel better than the B Corp with what you had in place, or ah, you know, I didn't really. Un I don't think I understood what what they were thinking. Um, that, yeah, you know. But look, very honestly, there are times when I felt that Crumb was so precious that nobody could ever be anything that we were. <laughs> so you know, and that was foolish. But. Um, the reason that we became a B Corp was very practical. All of a sudden, our customers were asking us about our footprint and about our, um, um, our um, relationship to corporate values and things. And we're talking about big companies. We're not talking about little companies. I, I remember going to Japan one time, and we were, it was my first meeting, there were a group of us, first meeting with a very large Japanese electronics company that had purchased, was, get, was going into biotech, and had purchased an American biotech company. And it was the first meeting that we had with these people. And the first thing they asked me about was employee ownership. So there's so and 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 then we started getting these ninety-page questionnaires about our, about corporate social responsibility. So whoa! And so we and we was and 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 it was coming from places that that you might not have thought about. And um, and then I realized that um, somebody, the people who founded B Corps, actually knew this. <laughs> they knew this was going to be a be the case. And the B Corps are a convenient and easy way of stating who you are. Mm. They're also a, a very um, um, 
incredibly talented marketing firm and other things, but they were a very, you know, when, when, when somebody would ask me, I said, look up our B Corp page and you can see everything there is to know about us. And that was a convenient way of stating who we were. We weren't hiding anything, we're transparent. Yep. It's transparent, um, you know, you get scores. And, um, and so it became everything for, it became part of Chroma's marketing, yeah. which is exactly what the B Corp people wanted. And I think for you, obviously, it was since it was a customer-driven sort of request, it's like, You've been listening to these same customers for decades. That's what's made you successful. So why wouldn't you continue to sort of follow their lead It was there? very definitely that. And it's it, it just, it was pretty amazing when, um, when, when customers started asking really serious questions about environmentalism and labor policies and all that kind of stuff. And I said, whoa, maybe we are having an impact on the world beyond what I think. Right. We're not just talking about pricing anymore. <laughs> yeah, no. So that actually kind of leads me into another question I wanted to ask about. Um, you were involved in a lot of Vermont business organizations over the mm -hmm. years um, and seemed pretty important to you in your career. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with some of those and, and how you would maybe advise new Vermont CEOs to get involved? So... Um, when we were with the other company before... I don't know if you know this, but the the way we the reason we started Chroma is I got fired from the other company. So it comes so, out. <laughs> <laughs> so when we, when we were with the, the 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 other company, VBSR was created, and um, I thought this is pretty interesting. Business is talking about social responsibility. Your and, parents would be proud. And I, I thought, <laughs> that's right. That's what do you do? I'm a member. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I thought we should join and the owner of that company wasn't particularly interested. I, thought, I think maybe because he didn't quite understand it because he was a pretty socially responsible guy. Um, so we didn't join. But when we started Chroma, we, um, we fairly early on, not immediately, but pretty much immediately joined VBSR, still not knowing what it was about, except that it was, it, it said that there was a relationship between business and social responsibility. And also the Vermont Employee Ownership Center was started in, during the early years of, of Chrome. And that was, of course, a natural fit. And so I, began, I, I became involved with both of those organizations. And, um, and I think that they're both in, incredibly important organizations to the state. And then um, the... Um, Vermont Business Magazine started the 5x5 five five awards. awards. Yep. And so Chroma was in the, um, I think in, in year one of the 5x5 five five awards, we were the fastest growing company of a certain size in the state. And at that time, um, everybody who was, a, a, everybody who represented a company that was a winner of a 5x5 five five award got to go up and talk. So I, so I was there, and I went up and I gave a little my little speech. A week or two later, Chroma got a call from Lisa Ventress, who was the president of the roundtable, looking for Dick Stewart, who was actually the president of Chroma, because I was not. Because going back to the beginning, nobody wanted me to be the president. So at Chroma, until they heard you speaking at award ceremonies, <laughs> nobody no. wanted anybody to be president of the company who wanted to be president of the company. Gotcha. So I wasn't. So Lisa was looking for Dick because she thought that Dick had made the speech. And, and I said, no, I made the speech. But you had to be president or CEO in order to be a member of the roundtable. So we had to create a position of CEO in order for me to be a member of the roundtable. You're so kidding. With no responsibilities whatsoever. Uh, well, we think the world of Lisa Ventures too, right? We, everybody wants to say yes to so Lisa. So Lisa got you promoted. Great. So Lisa got me promoted. And, and, I, and I joined the roundtable. And, and I, I was a, a duck out of water at the very beginning. And, and, and somehow um, I was... I was more than accepted 
it was like, okay, Paul's different, but we like him. Yeah, I pretty much said that to Sam an hour ago um, through meeting you on the, mm -hmm. the business roundtable. And um, I, mostly a lot of times conversation with business leaders that have the worries of the day are, are so predictable. Mm -hmm. and, and you kind of know where it's going. And I give you a lot of credit for standing up with something uh, a little bit different, certainly strongly put. And, and people, I think, respected that. It, it sort of was, it, it raised the, the, the discussion level. But I think this is also something that's terribly important about Vermont, is access. So we, we talk about access to political people and, and the governor's office and the senators and the, and, and, and the congressmen. Um, but in Vermont, you also have access to various business communities and people who have incredible experience and, and who, who are happy to talk to you about what they know. And so when you come across something that, um, that is a problem for you, there are people who you can talk to. So can I, can I, can I say an example if you want to, I guess you can cut it out if you, you want to, but a number of years ago when, when um, the first time Joyce Marcel did a profile of me for Vermont um, Business Magazine, she brought to Cromer um, Bruce Lisman um, because um, he was interested in Chroma and employee ownership. And we became friends. That relationship becomes terribly important later on because a very large British conglomerate is wanting to buy Chroma. And I don't know what to do. And so I said to Bruce, what do I do? And he said, if you want the company to be the company that you remember, don't sell. Yep. And that was really important. So there's, and, and, and I have benefited from the wisdom of all sorts of, of people in the business community, but the round table put me in contact with people that I never would have come into contact with just because of the nature of its membership. Well, we miss you at, at the board meetings. Uh, I'm no longer on the board. You get kicked you off, off again. You I get termed you, out. Can't you come? Aren't you like can't you show up next week at the summer meeting? I can. Oh, I'm a member. I'm still oh, a member. I, I was going to give I'm you my plus one, member. but no, I'm a retired <laughs> member, and, and I will be at the. Well, the meeting's online. I don't know about retired. You're just getting going, I think. So um, I have to ask you a question. Okay. Other fast-growing companies mm -hmm. lived through this. I mean, I, I think year two, you had 1.5 million in sales. You've been mm -hmm. profitable for mm -hmm. most all those years. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Um, where do growing companies seem to make uh, the biggest mistakes most often? Is it is it finance? Is it culture? Is it customer proximity? Ooh, good or, question, Dave. Well, yeah. this is, I, I get impressed. It's a very I'm good question, but I, and I can only answer it from my perspective. So I think it is customer relationships that are big deals. Certainly, Spoken like a true salesman, of course. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, of course. We know who the, the hipster, the hacker, and the hustler build right. businesses. We, we right. know which one you are. Um, certainly, um, you can make bad mistakes financially. And we were warned that in our fifth month, we were going to suffer some pain financially. And we better watch out for that. Um, but but in, in, in the year 2001, I believe, a company, an optical filter company in New York State decided to come into our space. So if you define our space at that point as largely biotech, this company had been in telecom, had not been particularly successful in telecom, and looked around where they thought they could become successful. And they targeted not just biotech, but they targeted us. And they had a technology that was better than ours. Ooh. And um, they should have wiped the floor with us. Mm. And in part because we didn't respond quickly. 
we were, we, we were not set up to respond quickly. But we didn't lose one customer. One of our customers worked with them on a new line of products, but nobody left us. Amazing. And I believe the reason that nobody left us is because of customer relations and customer service. And I still believe that. And I think that, that if there's anything going wrong with the world, it's the loss of that. That's great, Paul. I can't recall, Sam, no one else has said that to us in about a 65 or so episodes. No. No. I, yeah, and I, I mean, my early backgrounds in, in customer service and sales as well, and I couldn't agree more. Like, I think really putting in the extra time, and it is, it feels like extra time when you're doing it, right? It's not immediately beneficial, but I think in the long run, um, it makes all the difference in the world. I was lucky. I loved what I was doing. Yeah. I mean, I was traveling all over the world. Yeah, you building know? relationships. And, 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 and I would ha- not only would, would we, we have meetings, but you know, we would also go to karaoke clubs afterwards <laughs> in Japan. And now I um, do not sing. And so this was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I eventually I, I didn't go to the karaoke clubs I let other people go who could sing and I didn't but, but I have um, I have eaten my way around the world drunk my way around the world um, I have partied around the world with the same people who were customers and are now my friends and then and you get to come home to southern Vermont what's better than that Nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> nothing. I, I do want to ask a question that I think, you know, you clearly loved what you did and love the company you built. When did you know it was time to leave and step down and, and kind of pass the torch? You have tissues in the corner? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... Um, I've noticed that Vermonters have a really hard time retiring, so that's yeah. why I'm asking. Um, I announced that I was retiring a year before I retired, mm-hmm. a little over a year before I retired. Um, it was, I don't, I, I don't know that I knew exactly what my motivation was other than I was no longer feeling comfortable. Mm. And I no longer felt, I mean, when I traveled, I felt great. You know, when I was with customers, I felt great. But I no longer felt that um, I was the right person um, for Chroma um, in that role. Uh, there There were things that we could have possibly um, worked out. Chroma's general manager in Japan said, you should become chairman. And chairman is is the CEO who retires in Japan, and you become chairman. Um, But as I said, it was was becoming a managed company, and um, it's it would have been okay, except it's very hard to go from being CEO to something else right. in the same company. And um, and I never thought about what that might be. And um, I don't. There was an opportunity. The the board at Chroma created um, an opportunity for founders to stay with the company. You had to sell your shares back, um, but you could stay with the company and, and get paid, I forget what it was, I think it's 80% of the salary as long as you work 50% of your time. But And, and, and that might have been okay for somebody else, but it wasn't going to be for me because when, when you go from being CEO to somebody else being CEO, it's, 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 it's just a recipe for conflict. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And so well, it sounds like your self-awareness, right, of like, I'm not the person for the job anymore is like, that's a strong, you know, that's a strong feeling. And um, yeah, I mean, I think I have seen people try to do that, you know, sort of step back a little bit. And it's 
near impossible, I think, especially when you've been there so long. Well, it was already creating conflict. I mean, it was yeah. just the, the way, the difference in, 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 in how things... <laughs> it's a very different company. I mean, my, my, it's huge by comparison, right? Today, it's probably approaching 200 people. So, so I understand it is. Yeah, and, and COVID, the business has, has boomed with the demand. COVID, the business boomed. For the products and testing and, and drug discovery. and they were, they were at the forefront because all of the test equipment that was necessary for COVID, they were making the insides of. You know, cool. the, the largest, the, well, the second largest of all manufacturers of PCR equipment, Chroma, was, was a Chroma customer. And, and I, I don't know what this is. I, I don't say the name of the customer, but as I was leaving, they increased their orders by 600%. Oh, my God. That surprised me, given the demand. <laughs> and, and, and I think that it would have... I, I, as I say, it would have um, made it very difficult for me to not be able to deliver what I said. And I would have said yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, so I have one more question before we get the magic wand, Sam, okay? Go for it. And um, Paul, you and I have, have thought about, discussed different things around economic development in, in Vermont. And I just want to sort of hand you the microphone mm -hmm. here and just... What do you think about Vermont's economic development strategy and, and, and sort of the climate for business here? I think where Vermont is, is right is to not get involved in this, in the, the, um, the race to attract companies to Vermont with tax breaks and other things. A, we don't have the money for it. And B, it's not... It's, it, other states can do that a lot better. Nor do, and I don't think it's a um, it's a worthwhile venture. Um, we don't have the workforce for some of those kind of companies. I mean, imagine trying to attract I don't know um, an Amazon warehouse, even you know, with hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of employees. You know, there's, there there are very few high density places in Vermont where that could we couldn't. We couldn't provide the labor for it, and we and, and if we could attract the labor, we couldn't couldn't provide the housing for it. So I think we're right in not trying to do that. I think we need to recognize, and I've said this for a very long time, that our success has mostly happened with companies that have started here. And you start, and then you start naming them, and you name Gardner Supply, and you name, you know, Seventh Generation, and you name um, um, Chroma, and you know, you name. Well, King Arthur moved here, but they were a very much smaller company Green when Coffee's they moved a here. Big one. Burton. Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, Burton, you know, and all these Jerry's. companies. So the strategy is to help small companies get bigger, and um, I think. We do a pretty good job of that in terms of emotional support and intellectual support. We don't have a really, um, um, we don't have a good source of money for ventures. And um, there are ways in which we could do that that I don't think we're doing. And I would like to see us do some of those things. Canada and I can't remember which, which province it was, had a fund that workers could invest in that would finance employee-owned companies. Cool. You know, and, and the workers got a return on their investment, and the employee-owned companies got a source of capital. So that, was, that I thought, was a very interesting idea. Well, um, thinking about your, what you brought up earlier with, you know, Chroma started with, I think you had 235,000 versus the Swedish company that needed 21 million to do it, right? Like, I Austrian, think. Austrian, yes. Yeah, and I think that's Austrian, sorry. Um, I think that's, you know, that's with most industries, right? And most companies, the startup capital is just way more but intensive. But even then, so we applied for a small business guaranteed loan um, with one of the um, banks in Vermont at the time. And they looked at us askance and said, you know, we, we gave them our business plan. They 
<clears throat> excuse me, they, they looked at the business plan and said, okay, <laughs> come back later. And two years later, they came to us and said, we'd like to finance you. <laughs> and they said, sorry, too late. Well, that's that's <laughs> you know? the joke, right? We don't when, need you now. When you don't have the money, there is no money. And when you don't need so the money, there's plenty. The, 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 the possibility of a high-risk fund that no individual bank was responsible for, but they each contributed to, um, to help finance companies, I think would be a very interesting idea. Um, you know, the, the University of Vermont could locate campuses in every part of the state. It's not going to do that, can't afford to do that, but that would help a lot. Um, the, the idea that, that I once presented at the roundtable board meeting, which I really like, is a high-speed rail. Because then you could either live in Chittenden County and work in Wyndham County, or live in Wyndham County and work in Chittenden County. We have, we have solved that without the billions of dollars in rail with, with video conferencing, right? No, 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 no. You're talking to a sales guy, Dave. Come on. Yeah, no. I, since you know that how important I think personal contact is, I think the meetings are great, but there's, and I didn't coin this term, I'm hearing it being used a lot now, the, the water, water cooler effect, right. mm -hmm. you know. There's so much innovative thinking that comes out from contact with the people that you work with that, that the idea from exclusively working at home just drives me crazy. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this, this blend of both is, or hybrid is the way to go. Um, I do too. Well, I think that last question is the perfect segue into our final question. Okay. Which is, if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing about Vermont today with said magic wand, what would you change? I don't know if you could change it. Um, you, you, got, you, know, you but, finally yeah. have magic. Yeah, well, okay. Paul, Paul so, this is your chance. So <laughs> I would put Burlington in all four corners of the state. Okay. You know, um, wow, that's a new one. Novel answer. Um, you know, I would, it is, it is, look, the, people don't understand what the creative economy really is. They think it's what artists do. Paul Costello, who I think is, is a very brilliant oh, guy. Champ. Yeah. Big fans. Taught me this 30 years ago. The creative economy is the economy that develops because of the arts. So who wants to have a business where there's no theater? Who wants to have a business you know, where there are no restaurants? Who wants to have a business where there's nothing to do besides business? Yeah, where do you spend the money you make? <laughs> it's not just where do you spend the money. It's, 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 it's where do you, ha where, how do you have a soul? So the creative economy is, is what draws us and then all these other things emerge. The businesses emerge. Um, and and so, that, so when I say I want Burlington in all four corners of the state, that's what I mean. I mean I want a place that draws people and thinkers and doers. It's not to say that, they, that, 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 that Brattleboro and Wyndham County is not you know, a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful part of the state and, and has, uh, has theater. It's just not on the level of Burlington. There's a, there's a density with people and airports. And, so uh, so I, the other thing that I would do, you may remember, going to get in trouble right now. You may remember when Killington wanted to move to New Hampshire. Right? Oh, remember he's that? He's going back to New Hampshire. Uh-oh. Yeah, right? yeah. So I said, fine, I'll trade you. New Hampshire, you get Killington, we get Keene. Great land swap. That would have been a great swap because Keene has a lot of what Burlington has. Keene's pretty cool. We work with the the incubator center down there, um, and uh, you know, live, I lived along the Connecticut River too at one point, and you don't see a border. Mm -mm. You know, it's just well, but 
a little bit. I didn't in the there's upper valley. This, was, uh, we shopped I, on yeah. one side. We, you well, know, upper just valley. So you had you had Lebanon on one side and and White River on the other side. You know that's True. you know, but there's still the, the major the, cities. The two state mottos, you know, <laughs> live free and die, and freedom and unity. There's a big difference. <laughs> there's a big difference. Paul Millman, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story, Thank you. the chapters you've written so far. I, I can't wait to see what's next for you. This has been Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. This series is supported by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communications. If you like what you're hearing, share us, follow us, tell a friend. Let's get back to work.